If you would, open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 39. We are continuing uh, our series through the attributes of God. And uh, this morning we are looking at the sovereignty of God, meaning that God is the king. God is in control, and we will unpack that more. And uh, I often tell our students in RUF, and I think almost every time I get up to preach anywhere, where I, I do love to say, open your Bibles and keep them open. There's a reason why, because as, as preachers, we don't want this to be our message, we want this to be God's message, because the message is the text, not what we come up with. So we keep our Bibles open because ultimately we are hearing God speak through weak and lowly men. And so that's why we want to keep looking at the text and unpacking it and delighting in it because it is God speaking to us. So let's read Romans 8, 28 uh, through verse 39. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. God's people said, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this marvelous truth here in your word. And we are asking that in this time we would hear you speak. And that means to hear we must have ears to hear. And we must have hearts that are alive. And we must ha ha have the, the idols of our hearts exposed and repented of so that, so that we might worship you. And help us to know that you indeed are the sovereign one. You indeed are the king. And help us to have great hope. Hope that you will keep us and you will bring us all the way home. We ask all this in the name of Christ. Amen. 
Joel Beakey is uh, one of my favorite Christian authors and actually uh, kind of a fun fact, y'all know the Neils who are here, Tanya Neils, uh, Joel Beakey is her great uncle, pretty cool, ask her about it. But one of the things about Joel Beakey, who is, he's a pastor, he's the president of Puritan Reform Theological Seminary, and he's also head of this uh, publishing company called Reformation Heritage. Well, Joel Beakey has written and co-authored over 100 books. I don't know how, but he's done it. And it's interesting because almost all the books that come out of Reformation Heritage they are either co-authored by him, or he's written the forward, or he's written an endorsement, or in the acknowledgments, they thank Joel Beakey. It's as if Joel Beakey is the sovereign of Reformation Heritage books. His hand is in everything. You see, what is God's sovereignty? God's sovereignty, we could say this, it is his hands in everything. It is his hands on everything. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, section 1 says this, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, he freely and unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to pass. Yet, as thereby God is neither the author of sin nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Now, you might have many questions about that. What in the world does it mean that God is sovereign and yet humans are responsible? What does it mean that God is sovereign over first causes and second causes? Let's have those discussions later. But here's what we're going to focus on this morning. Particularly this. God's sovereignty for his people in their salvation that God will bring his people all the way home, amen? That is what we need to hear today. But we often hate God's sovereignty in our world today because we hate being ruled, and ultimately that was the original temptation. You take this fruit and what? You will be like God. We want to be the sovereign and we hate it that someone else is, but yet at the same time, we also hope in God's sovereignty. Because when we see chaos, when we see things in our life that are outside of our control, we want to know, is someone in control and is he on our side? That's why we need to study his sovereignty. So specifically in this text in Romans 8, what is the sovereignty of God for his people? Well, I want to ask three questions. First, what do we know? Secondly, how do we know this? And thirdly, what does this mean? Very simple. What do we know? How do we know this? And what does this mean? So look at verse 28. Let's read it again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We know, we know that for those who love God, God sovereignly works in all things for our good. Actually, that is a a little better translation of what is trying to be unpacked to us there in the original language is that is really saying we know that for those who love God, God is working in all things together for good. Who's doing the work? It's not things in and of themselves. God is doing the work in all things for your good, dear believer. It's amazing. And now you need to hear this in the context of this. 
This is for the believer. The unbeliever is not having things work out for their ultimate good, though they try so hard. But the promise for all those who come to Jesus Christ is that God is on your side. And he is working all things, in all things, for your good. There is not a single thing in the life of the believer that God is not working in. God has ordained and is still working in whatsoever comes to pass. When Paul says, and we know, that word know, it means experiential knowledge. It's not... Uh, just this mental acknowledgement, but you don't really live by it. It's this intimate acquaintance with something. In other words, it's, it's gone from head to heart. Or let me put it this way. Some of you have been in Boone Pickens Stadium, and there's a difference between watching Oklahoma State football on TV versus knowing what it's like to be in the stadium when we, when we defeat Oklahoma. Amen? Now, you know that experientially, you've been there. And so when Paul is saying, and we know, what he is saying is that this is the lens through which we see all of life. That I interpret all of my life experience through the lens of this. God is working in all things for my good. He's working in all things for those who love God. Now, Here's what this text is not saying. Within the context of Romans, it is not saying because you love God so much, he's returning your love and saying, you've earned it. Now I'm going to work all things. It's not what it's saying. Chapter 5 of Romans was just talking about how God loved us first. And we love in response to his love. We do love, but we love because he first loved us. So God is working in all things for his people. But notice there, excuse me, notice that it says that God is working some things. That's what it says, right? And what does it say? And we know that for those who love God, all things. But if we're honest, we often live as if it's just some things. He can handle these things, but functionally, even though I might say God is sovereign, I might say he's king, I might say he's in control, but I'm not actually trusting that he's working in this. But it says all things, the entirety of your life, everything about your life, completely in your life, leaving nothing out. As R.C. Sproul says, if there is one maverick molecule in all the universe, then God is not sovereign. And if God is not sovereign, God is not God. The very base definition of what the God must be is that he is the one who is in control. And he's in control of all things. See, we need to ask ourselves some questions about how, how well we believe that God is working in all things. Think about, let's think about these three areas of head, heart, and hands. First in our, our head, our thinking what are we tempted to think that God and his sovereignty, what are we tempted to think that he can't use for our good and his glory? Are we more pessimistic in our outlook than we are optimistic? Are we looking at our lives through the lens of our inability to control or through the lens of God's sovereign ability 
to control and to redeem. What about some questions for our heart? What do we treat as the functional sovereign in our lives? What circumstances from the past tempt you to be overwhelmed with guilt and shame as if God cannot sovereignly forgive and redeem that? What potential what-ifs in the future, what potential what-ifs in the future tempt you to be overwhelmed at the thought of them? What current sufferings or sins have you downcast in your heart thinking God is a harsh judge towards you? Does your heart keep you in a fearful state thinking that everything that has happened, everything that is happening, or everything that could happen is just God getting you straight? Are you constantly anxious about your health, finances, family, grades, marriage, job performance, or job security, your retirement, or world events? Ask yourselves those questions. But what about how we actually live out? What about our actions? How are we pointing people to a big God and a big gospel that helps them see the redemptive love for their past and their future? Are we moving forward in life with the expectation that God is at work? Are we holding our heads up in eager expectation, even amidst sorrow, that God knows how to turn our tragedies into triumph? Those are some of the reflection questions we need to ask about if we trust that God really is working in all things. Now notice this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for what? What words it use? Good. Good. It is often easier to believe that God is sovereign and not as easy to believe that he is also good. But God is a good sovereign. He is working all things for his glory and our good. You see, we often look at things in our life and, and we think that there's no way that this thing can turn out for our good. And, and we conclude either this, that God is either good or he is sovereign. But apart from divine grace, our best efforts, they never result for our own good or God's glory. And as I mentioned earlier, it is in Christ that even the worst tragedies in your life, by his divine mercy, he turns them into triumphs. You will not understand it yet. But in heaven, one day, you will be able to see he's done it. Does that mean we have earthly prosperity all the time? No. That we just live in this health, wealth, and happiness life? No, but rather he's working for our heavenly prosperity. Nothing of the earthly prosperity, even though he does give it to us at times. But he does not always do that because he's preparing us for the heavenly prosperity. And nothing of the earthly prosperity can compare with what we have then. That's what he's working in us to prepare us for that. And we need to ask the question, is there anything God cannot do? Psalm 115 verse 3 says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Not some. He does all. Even, even the anxiety or depression that you might be experiencing right now, even that will result for your good. Sometimes God in his divine sovereignty 
He does allow us to go through those seasons for a, a, a strange yet true spiritual growth. Luther called this the theology of the cross, that God appears to be working in the opposites. When the Son of God was, was on the cross and it looked like the world has won, it was actually at that very moment that God was winning. And often God deals with us in those ways and he brings things into our life that we say, well, this will be the end of me. But rather God is actually bringing us to an end of ourselves so that we can get to him. And oftentimes what the Lord does, and Luther says this is actually what makes a true theologian, is that he allows you to go through these spiritual sufferings and, and these debilitating seasons because in a strange way it makes you cry out to him and it makes you a true theologian. He works in the darkest times and in the brightest times. You see, we know also, not just that God is working in all things, but we know that this is for those who are sovereignly called by God. Look at the second part of verse 28. For those who are called according to his purpose. You see, what is the purpose? You actually see that in verse 29. The purpose, it says, uh, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The purpose of God in all things in your life is to conform you to the image of Christ. He uses the good things and he can even use the bad things. He uses your sufferings and he uses your sins and he uses the things that you do as a saint in Christ. He uses all things to make you like Christ. You see, God is the one who has called us. God is the one uh, who has called us into his love. He's called us into his relationship so that now we have that covenantal divine favor. As Job uh, 42 verse 2 says, God's purposes cannot be thwarted. What this text is calling us to do is to think so much more highly of who he is for us. And he is orchestrating all things, in all things, for our good, so that we might be like Christ. But how do we expect to think more highly of God's sovereignty if we're constantly drinking down the bad narratives? We're always telling ourselves some sort of a narrative, some sort of a plot, or some people say a story. We're telling ourselves uh, of what is true and where life is going. And actually, Paul says in Philippians 4.8, here's what you are to think about. But we love to reverse what Paul is thinking about. Here's how we like to take Philippians 4.8. We love to reverse it. And it's as if we like to do this. Whatever things are false, whatever things are sordid, whatever things are wrong, whatever things are filthy, whatever things are ugly, whatever things are terrible, if there is any vice... And if there is anything worthy of criticism, meditate on these things. That's what we often do. And you know what? How much of our modern entertainment is filled with this? How much of social media is filled with this? How much of the news is constantly filled with this? And no wonder we're driven to so much different anxieties and fears because we've not meditated upon the goodness of our sovereign You see, God is sovereignly working in all things, especially the things that we least expect. He is working in all things to make us like Jesus and to prepare you for the eternal weight of glory. You might not feel that, 
but God's word says it. Therefore, it is true. Amen? God is sovereignly working to save his people and secure his people. And we know this. But how do we know it? Look at verse 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And for those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, we know that God is working in all things, excuse me, in all things for our good because those whom he has foreknown, he has predestined. Some theologians call this the great golden chain of salvation where God will bring his people all the way from the start to the finish. And notice the logic here. Look at verse 29. All those whom he has foreknown, and I'll explain what this means in a second, but notice this chain. Everyone whom he has foreknown, he brings all of them to be predestined. No one's left behind. And in all those whom God has predestined, he also calls them. Once again, no one's left behind. There are no stragglers. It's not like you're trying to walk, you're a little child trying to follow your your long-legged parent as you walk through the museum and you're just trying to keep up. No, no, no. No one's left behind. Everyone is called and everyone is justified. And everyone who is justified is glorified. No one is left behind. God loses no one. Everyone whom God chooses for salvation, he is undefeated in bringing them to the end. But what does it mean that God foreknew? We need to remember is that first off, these words, they might, they might irk some of you out, but they really are here in the Greek. These words are really here in Scripture. And you might not like the idea of Calvinism or Reformed theology or whatever it is, but you have to do something with these words in this section because they're here and they're loud and clear. And these are actually good English translations. So this word for to foreknow, what does it mean? It means to know beforehand, to know in advance. It's not this. It is not that God knows who will choose him, so therefore he chooses them. Because think about this. If God knew that my wife would choose him, so therefore he chooses her, he's giving her what she deserves. That's not grace, that's works. But God's salvation is all of grace. He chooses freely, he foreknows freely, he chooses intimately to know us, and it's not because we we deserved it, it's not because we were beautiful, it's actually in light of our sin. And all those whom he has foreknown, it says that he is predestined. Notice the, just the sovereign just authority of God here. Predestined mean that God, it says, I picked out for myself. I choose. It is the word that means the act of picking out. Or here's what one person says. This word is used of that act of God's free will by which before the foundation of the world, he decreed his blessings to certain persons. If something... The Greek is actually bringing out more than the English is bringing out about the sovereignty of God here. He is the sovereign. He is the one who chooses. Now, here's what's amazing about this. If God chose you, do you think you can do anything to mess up his plan? 
if God chose you before all time began, and he's the one who has decreed all things to happen, then do you think he'll get to a point within history to say, oh, I forgot about that one thing. Ah, I'm Charles, I'm done with you. Do you, you think he's going to really go for that? If he chose you, he's going to save you. He will keep you. Amen? You are God's. He has you the whole way. You see, and, and always, whenever Scripture's talking about uh, the sovereign election of God, it's actually always in the context of giving people hope. People who are worried that their Romans 7 struggle with sin will somehow outmatch God's grace. If you've never read Romans 7, go and read it. And you will, you will look at that and you will say, yes, that's me. I want to follow God, but I struggle and I sin. But God is saying, look, I will never let you go. I am the sovereign one. No one can mess up my purposes. He's predestined us, as I mentioned earlier, to be conformed to the image of Christ. That is the good that God is moving us toward. But why has he done this? Now watch this. This, this is where this gets amazing. <clears throat> he has done this in order that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now that, that does not mean this. That does not mean that Christ would be the first one created. The word firstborn is actually more associated with preeminent. God is saying this, look, I am going to work in all things in your life for all of my people whom I have chosen for all the history of the world. I am going to orchestrate absolutely everything so that they might be conformed to the image of Christ. And that is going to be for the glory of Jesus Christ. It's about him. Now, let's think about this. You see, if Christ is the one whom we're all going toward, can you imagine how glorious Christ will look when billions upon billions of people stand before the throne in heaven? Have you ever been around someone who, uh, or maybe it's a group of people, and they keep talking about their friend from back home? And there's these infamous stories, and you're just like, this guy's amazing, or this girl's hilarious. And you just keep hearing these amazing stories. They're like fish stories. You know, the fish just keeps getting bigger and bigger the more you tell it. And you're thinking, this person's awesome. And then you finally meet them, and then you're like, they are awesome. I really like them. Think about this. How much more greater is Christ? The more we see Christ working in each individual life and you hear about it in the lives of, of others and you see it through years and years and years, how great must Christ be? How great will our thoughts of Christ be whenever we see the sea of innumerable, innumerable people in heaven and they are all reflecting the glory of Christ? How great will Christ look when you talk to St. Augustine about how miraculously God changed his life of sexual promiscuity to a life marked by grace? How amazing will it be when you talk with Martin Luther, who was a man marked by sinful fear and dread of God, to then become one of the most bold men in the world during his times? Or how about when you talk with Elizabeth Elliot, who went back to minister to the people who killed her husband, all because of the grace of God in her life? Or how about when you talk to Rosaria Butterfield, who used to be gay and embraced the LGBTQ lifestyle, to then be born again by the Holy Spirit and is now married to a man and writes some of the most fantastic books on the Christian life. How amazing will Christ be? Amen? 
God is doing that work. He is the one who is, who is protecting and guarding and keeping and sanctifying his people. And it is for the glory of God in Christ that he do a magnificent work. In other words, here's the argument I'm trying to make. How crazy would it be is that after Christ has purchased everything necessary for all of your salvation, that now the Father would say, I'm not going to treat them very well. Or I'm not going to do all things in, your, in their life that they need to be conformed to Christ. Or I'm not going to keep them. How just breaking the Trinity would that be? God will glorify his son. And by glorifying his son, that means he will work in all things for your life to bring you all the way home. Amen? We should expect the greatest good from God in all things. Especially when life feels evil. We need to be reminded of our sovereign good God. He's the sovereign one who has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son, and therefore he also calls us. He effectually draws uh, men and women to Christ, and when he calls us to him, he justifies us. He gives that legal declaration that we are in the right with him. And that legal declaration, he does not change. It was awesome yesterday as I had the privilege to officiate Levi uh, and Kylie now, both of them, Penwell, uh, their wedding yesterday. And there's a moment in the wedding where it comes where there's the declaration of the marriage where I get to say, and now because of the, uh, the authority vested in me by the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and the state of Oklahoma and all these things, I pronounce you Mr. and Mrs. Michael Levi Penwell. It's amazing. It's an incredible moment. But they did nothing. They just sat there. They just held their hands and smiled. And in one moment, by words, they were married. They didn't do anything. Just right there. What we do when we are justified by God, we don't do anything to earn it. And he declares it upon us, and it is true, and it will never be taken away. You can do nothing to change God's justification for you. You are always in the right with God. And he will look at you, and he will treat you always as if you have never sinned as if you're like Christ, always. And God, what Paul is saying here is that since he has justified you, he will also glorify you. Now, glorify you. Now, look at this. Doesn't it seem like he missed a step here? Do you notice that? There's a big chunk of our life that happens after justification and then before glorification, right? You know what it is? It's called sanctification. It's the process of God making us more like Christ. That is the Christian life. He, he left it out. But think about this. Maybe he didn't. Maybe he wants you to know that your sanctification is absolutely guaranteed. If he justified you, he will glorify you. No matter how bad or how off or shaky or whatever your sanctification might feel, you will make it home because he is God. Amen? He will sanctify you. He will make you like Christ. It is for the glory of God and for his son and for the Holy Spirit that he do so. Now, <laughs> let's think about this. Let's get very practical. If God is working in all things and he will keep you all the way to the end, do you think that might help you sleep at night? Do you think that might help you to lay down your efforts, to lay down your ambitions, 
to lay down your technology and your goals and your frenetic activity and to rest. Because God is not looking at you anymore saying, be better or be enough. As Charles Spurgeon said, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving him perfect peace. How often, as soon as we we put our phones down and we put them in the charger and the TV's off and we lay down and as soon as we close our eyes, thoughts are just... And we think about all these different things that have happened or that might happen. But the sovereign God is telling you, you can and you should sleep. I have you. And I will work in all things for your good and my glory. Amen? You can trust that God. As George Whitfield said, I am invincible until God calls me home. And that's who he is. See, we know for a fact that God will sovereignly save and secure his people. That's what we know. Thirdly, what does this mean? Look at verses 31 to 39. This is an incredible section of of scripture here. What then shall we say to these things? I love it. Paul's all, it's kind of like he's asking the question, so what? Here's what. If God is for us, who in the world, in, in all creation, visible and invisible, Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, think about verse 28, <clears throat> in all these things, we are more than conquerors, not in and of ourselves, but through him who loved us, for I am sure That neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? It's almost almost so amazing the audacity that some of us would have just to over-explain this. This is amazing stuff. What does this mean? First off, it means that if our sovereign God is for us, who can be against us? He's the sovereign, and he has covenanted himself to us. When it says there, look at verse 31, when it says if God is for us, don't just pass by that word. That word, it really is the image of a person standing or bending over someone for protection. It's also the word used Uh, in some instances of a shield that is lifted over the head so that the shield suffers the blow rather than the person. God is for you. He protects you. He is watching everything that happens from afar and up close, and he is doing all things for your good. No matter how many flaming arrows Satan shoots at us, even if they hit us, God is for you, he is towards you, and he is for your sake. 
He will only allow what is expedient for your faith in being conformed into the image of Christ. You see, when you think that this moment or this struggle or this past or this future, that this is going to be the death of me. You see, that's when you need to remember this verse. He's for you. And if the sovereign God is for you, can anyone or anything possibly be stronger than God? Because if that thing or person is stronger than God, that's the sovereign. See, what we need to watch, we need to watch what we ascribe our fears to. Because God is is who we are told, he's the one who is our ultimate fear. Not Not a sinful dread that draws us away, but a fear that rejoices and trembles, as the title of Michael Reeves' book is, where we look at God and say, you are my sovereign and you've got me. You see, if God didn't spare his own son, it says, but yet he gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I love that Paul's use again of all things, referring back to verse 28. In other words, God is going to work in all things and give you all things to be conformed to the image of Christ. He's not going to leave anything out. It's not like he's making this smoothie of your life and has all these ingredients, and then he gets to the end, he tastes it, and he's like, oh, that doesn't taste very good. Oh, because I left out, you know, the, the, the syrup or the sugar or whatever it is. He's not going to leave anything out in your life for whatever that illustration's worth. You see, we often show great unbelief when we don't think the most high thoughts of God's sovereign goodness towards us. How precious, how precious was his son to him. Did the father really offer up his son in vain to us? You see, think about this. Would the father so dishonor and so despise the work of his own son that after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven, that now God would treat you with ill will and harshness? Imagine this. This illustration doesn't have all the parallels, but just for whatever illustration is worth. Imagine you are the richest person in the world, and you bought a company for an incredibly expensive price, and it was so expensive that even you, the richest person in the world, had to sell so much just to buy this company. This company has thousands upon thousands of employees who have given their best efforts their whole life to make this company of such value that only you could buy it. And imagine that this very same company is also the one that provides some of the greatest benefits to the world at this moment. And then realize it's not just for the benefit of the world, but it's also for the benefit of your own legacy, your own life, and your own family who will receive this inheritance for years and generations to come. Now, imagine this. Imagine if you purposely tanked that company. How sinister, how evil, not just to you, but to the employees, to your family, to the world, if you took something so good and said, I'm going to tank this. Could you imagine that after the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity who shares the same nature as the Father, that as he comes down, takes on flesh, and purchases his people, that now somehow the father would say, I'm going to tank their life. That would disrupt the Trinity, and therefore God would ungod himself. God 
will not leave you. He will not abandon you. He will not let you all of a sudden turn into some sort of an orphan. But rather, God is for you. He will give you all things that you need. He is the gracious and gentle and heavenly Father towards you because he's given you his son. Think more highly of God's sovereign care for you, especially when it doesn't feel good. See, dear believer, you better believe that if you have dreadful thoughts of God, that if you picture him as someone who's just out to get you, or, or if you picture him as a harsh, distant taskmaster, then you're not picturing the father that Jesus Christ has revealed. You are living in sinful fear, and you're succumbing to the temptations of the evil one who always seeks to paint God in his own colors. That's what Satan loves to do. He loves to make you think about God with how Satan should be viewed. As Anselm has said, God is a being than which nothing greater can be conceived. You cannot think too highly about God's goodness and sovereignty towards you. Amen? I remember, I remember a season when I was very confident in God's sovereignty, but not in his goodness. And he became to me like a very harsh revenger in heaven. Jesus might have secured me getting to heaven, but my Christian life would be a life of constant introspection and seeing if I've done enough. And obviously, you never do enough. You can never confess enough. You can never repent enough. You can never try hard enough. And what I felt like the longer that I lived was that God was going to bring something big or hard into my life to really shape me up. Have y'all been there? He was like a harsh football coach in heaven who was just showing me that tough love by chewing me out for all my failures. But he wasn't really enjoyable to think about. He wasn't comforting in the sermons I heard. He wasn't approachable in prayer. And he was hounding me about my mistakes in the past and haunting me about the future. But that is not the God of Romans 8. The God of Romans 8 has covenanted himself to you He is for you, and he is working in all things for your good. Paul just keeps going, and we hardly have the time just to unpack all this. It is just so rich. But he's saying, look, if God has called you to himself, who is going to be able to bring any charges against you? God is the one who justifies you. No one else is going to change that courtroom decision. No one's going to be able to condemn you because Jesus Christ is the one who died and who is raised, and he intercedes for you. You see, (laughs) excuse me, if you're a believer, when you listen to those thoughts of condemnation, what you are doing is this. You're functionally putting Christ back into the grave. If you're listening to those thoughts of condemnation versus conviction, you need to think about this. When God calls you to Christ, when he calls you to himself, he unites you with Jesus Christ. And so now for you to believe the condemning thoughts, you are taking Christ, as it were, back into the grave because you're believing that you deserve death. Christ has risen, and he has ascended into heaven. And the condemning thoughts that you hear from the evil one are not your reality. Christ is. Amen? But how many of us of our anxious and despairing thoughts stem just from listening to the thoughts of condemnation. And they pretend like they're the sovereign, but they're not. But God has said, look, 
who shall separate you from the love of Christ? And I love this. Paul just starts, he just starts spitting out all these different things. And he, he names all these extreme uh, examples to show you that if these extreme things cannot separate you from my love, then the small things can. Nothing from A to Z can separate you from my love. In other words, here's what you're invited to do with this text. Name anything in your life and put it here. And that thing will never separate you from the love of God. That's what Paul is telling you to do. See, he is saying in all things that God is with you. That we have a God who is working the visible and invisible, the material and spiritual, heaven and earth, princes and powers, governments and governors, persecution and plagues, sickness and health, prosperity and poverty, sins and suffering, politics and policies, wars and rumors of wars, good news and bad news, your past and your future, your family and friends and foes. He is working all things for your good and for his glory. Amen? That's what he's doing. It's amazing. It's amazing if we would believe this. And I say that to myself. Would you try new things if you believe this? Would you be a missionary? Would you pray more? Would you live with peace in your conscience? Would you run to the weary? Would you delight in God's creation? Would you sleep better at night? Would you laugh in the face of danger? Would you stand boldly in the face of persecution? Would you be courageous in an age of increasing worldliness? Would you embrace God's biblical ethics even when people are ready to cancel you? Would you tell your neighbor the gospel? Would you have hope that your prodigal child will return home? Would you trust God amidst your spouse having physical illness? Would you trust your godly principles in your business or in your practice or in the classroom knowing that God is your shield? Would you look at your addictions and ascribe more fear to God than to your struggle? Would you look at your past, seeing that God knew before you were even born what would happen, and yet he still decided to save you? So would you look at your past with great confidence that God will redeem it? Would you continue to look at the news and become anxious at all you see on TV, or would you be still and know that he is God? We're about to sing a song that is a beautiful song. It's called, Oh Love That Will Not Let Me Go. And there's a story behind this song. At age 20, George Matheson was engaged to be married, but began going blind. And when the news broke to his fiancee, she decided she could not go through life with a blind husband. And so she left him. Before losing his sight, he had written two books of theology, and some felt that he could have been the greatest leader of the Church of Scotland in his day. A special providence was that George's sister offered to care for him. And with her help, George left the world of academia for pastoral ministry, and he wound up preaching to 1,500 people each week blind. The day came, however, in 1882 when his sister fell in love and prepared for marriage herself. The evening before the wedding, George's whole family had left to get ready for the next day's celebration, and he was alone and facing the prospect of living the rest of his life without the one person who had come through for him. On top of all this, he was doubtless reflecting on his own aborted wedding day 20 years earlier. It's not hard, as this person says, it's not hard to imagine the fresh waves of grief washing over him that night. 
And it's in the darkness of that moment that George Matheson wrote this song. He remarked afterward, it took him only five minutes to write it, and it was the only song he did not have to edit. And it's the love that will not let you go. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we ask that in your sovereign mercy that you would convince us of this great love that will not let us go. That no matter what happens through from A to Z, either from the gates of hell or high water, that we will know as Isaiah 43 declares, you are with us and your love will not let us go. Help us to believe that. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.